We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. It looks funny out there to see my glove out there, Jim. Jimmy Moore, get back in. Okay. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? By cooperating together in these new realms of infinity. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to Episode 62 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. I recommend listening to Episode 60 and 61 before you listen to this episode. And now, Jiminy 4 with James McDivitt and Edward White, The Duration, Part 3. When we left off from Episode 61... Ed White had just completed his historic spacewalk and had returned to the spacecraft. Now it was time to pursue the next goal of achieving a long-duration flight lasting up to four days. This was longer than any U.S. astronaut had spent in space. Of course, in a long-duration flight, the astronauts had to sleep, eat, and eliminate waste. First, let's cover sleep. White and McDivitt had intended to sleep alternate periods of four hours each, but this was hard to do. The constant crackle of radioed information and orders and the occasional automatic thruster firings kept them awake. Whoever was on duty frequently bumped into the sleeping astronaut in this very small capsule. So sleeping did pose a problem. Now let's move on to food. In a weightless environment of space, astronauts exert less energy in conducting their work than if they were on Earth. Gemini astronauts were allotted 2,500 calories a day during space missions, which was less than their normal intake of 3,000 calories. The food, which had 99% of the moisture removed to reduce weight, had an average content of 17% protein, 32% fat, and 51% carbohydrates. Several of the food issues from the Mercury missions were addressed for the later Gemini missions. First, toothpaste-style tubes were abandoned. Dehydrated, freeze-dried, and bite-sized foods coated with gelatin or oil to prevent crumbling were introduced during Project Gemini. For later flights, onboard hydrogen-oxygen fuel cells provided a source of water that could be used to moisten dehydrated or freeze-dried foods. Freeze-dried foods were prepared by quick-freezing cooked items, which were then placed in a vacuum chamber where they were heated to remove all water. Natural oils, however, were retained. The items were then vacuum-packed in a four-ply laminated container with a water valve at one end. Foods preserved in this manner could be kept at room temperature for long periods of time. Gemini and Apollo food was prepared and packaged by Whirlpool Corporation in conjunction with NASA 
and the U.S. Army Laboratory in Natick, Massachusetts. When it was time to eat, the astronauts rehydrated a freeze-dried meal using a water gun to inject cold water into the package. After cutting the package open with scissors, the meal was ready to eat. Some meals included beef sandwiches, cereal cubes, peaches, beef with gravy, shrimp cocktail, chicken and vegetables, toast squares, butterscotch pudding, and apple juice to name a few. Here's a clip on the food. Food has been planned as a working man's ration. Four meals a day, 2,600 calories. Laid out on a table, it looks a little different from a regular meal. Plastic packages with bite-sized meals or freeze-dried food to be reconstituted with water. But it was good, solid, everyday fare. Meat, salmon, chocolate pudding, chicken, potato soup. After the first day, the astronauts ate the prescribed four meals a day. They would come down with only a portion of the last meal left. Keep in mind, the diets were specially devised to produce very little solid waste. And speaking of waste, this is how the Gemini astronauts dealt with it. Of course, during launch, the astronauts still wore a urine collection device inside their spacesuits. Later in the flight, they had two systems for dealing with waste. For urination, they had a hose with a condom-like attachment they could roll over their member and effectively urinate. Then the urine was dumped into space. For solid waste, things were a bit more complicated. The astronauts had a special blue bag. The bag had a ring of sticky tape around the end with which the astronaut would attach the bag to his behind. He would then defecate, but, of course, in zero gravity, the defecate did not fall away from his behind. To get around this problem, the bag had special shaped sections so the astronaut could use his fingers to grab the waist and pull it away from his behind and into the bag. He would then remove the bag and seal it. As if that wasn't bad enough, he would then squeeze the bag to burst a section that contained a germicidal fluid. Then he would have to squish it around so that the fluid got through the whole contents of the bag and then the bag would be stowed in the spacecraft for return to Earth and disposal once they got back. On Apollo 8, they discovered the limitations of this system when one of the crew suffered a bad reaction to a sleeping tablet and had diarrhea as a result. I'll leave that to your imagination. Now let's turn our attention to the ground. Gemini 4 was the first of the program's longer missions. It imposed a set of new demands on ground control which moved for the first time into a three-shift operation. Chris Kraft acted as both mission director for the entire flight and flight director for the first shift. Gene Krantz directed the second shift and John Hodge the third. First shift focused its efforts on helping McDivitt and White carry out the flight plan. 
The second shift concerned itself mainly with keeping track of system's performance and the use of such consumable stores as oxygen and fuel. The third shift concentrated on real-time flight planning. Of course, the basic framework of the flight plan was set before launch. But, on the basis of what had already been achieved, how systems were working, and what stocks of fuel and other consumables remained, the third shift tuned the flight plan with specific instructions for the crew on tasks to be done or eliminated during the day ahead. Backing up the flight control teams were a number of systems experts who stood by in the staff support rooms of the new mission control center. They included not only NASA specialists, but also contract people, some of whom were assigned full-time to Houston while missions were in progress. At their home plant, other teams maintained systems under simulated flight conditions to provide quick answers to flight problems. Technical monitors and principal investigators were also on hand in the Mission Control Center for the Gemini Experiment Program, which was now more methodically handled by a new Experiments Program Office under Robert Pelin in the Engineering and Development Directorate. Gemini 4's 11 experiments made it the first American mission to bear some resemblance to the manned space laboratory that had long been a staple of space flight thought. Gemini 4 was also the first mission to employ systematic methods to gather, evaluate, and publish information quickly, another demand imposed by longer flights and shorter intervals between missions. Willis Mitchell and Scott Simpkinson of GPO headed the 150-person mission evaluation team that began work at liftoff and kept working through post-flight inspection and mission evaluation. Gemini 4 served as a training ground for pilots, flight controllers, and evaluators alike, setting the style for later Gemini missions as well as the future Apollo flights. Meanwhile, back in space, McDivitt and White drifted, watching systems, making observations, and doing experiments. A rigid constraint on fuel usage hampered most of these activities, although several of Gemini 4's 11 experiments were largely unaffected. Here's a clip on the experiments. His flight plan included 11 onboard experiments. For convenience, they may be roughly divided into medical, measurement, and photographic categories. There were three medical experiments. In-flight exercise, in-flight phonocardiogram, and bone demineralization. The five measurement experiments included measurement of radiation, spacecraft exterior, radiation, spacecraft interior, measurement of the electrostatic charge accumulated on the spacecraft exterior, measurement of the direction and amplitude of the Earth's magnetic field, sextant-type measurements for navigation study. And finally, there were three photographic experiments, synoptic weather photography, synoptic terrain photography, Earth limb photography. All 11 experiments are important in increasing our knowledge of how man will live and work in space, but the photographic experiments are visually more interesting to us. 
As Germany IV swept over Africa, it looked down on the ancient Nile Delta from approximately 120 miles in space. In a single photograph, it caught a view that includes portions of seven countries in which some 25 million people live. The Earth's limb, or boundary layer of red and blue above the atmosphere, was the subject of another experiment. Reduced to a gray scale by filters, these photographs will be studied with a microdensitometer to determine the excess elevation of the blue limb above the red as an aid in space navigation. Experiment D-8 checked radiation in the spacecraft by using five dosimeters. There was heightened interest for this experiment when Gemini 4 was passing through the South Atlantic Anomaly, which is an intense pocket of the ionosphere where radiation levels were considerably higher than in all other regions. In the simple navigation experiment D-9, the pilots used a handheld sextant in an attempt to get celestial navigation readings to judge sextant operation and navigational accuracy. McDivitt and White both agreed that the sextant might be useful for Apollo. McDivitt and White had good fortune in the synoptic terrain 5-5 and synoptic weather 5-6 photography experiments. The 70mm Hasselblad calendar worked well, and in a tourist-like manner, the astronauts tried to capture the view. They were especially interested in the Nile River area. One saw Cairo, then the other saw Alexandria, and White remarked that a landmark near a body of water was easier to spot. On one occasion, they snapped pictures from the Pacific coast to Texas, showing good geological detail. They performed like professionals in getting pictures of weather phenomena. Unmanned Tyros weather satellites provided coverage for 640 kilometers, but Gemini 4 gave the meteorologist a closer look without a mosaic patchwork at cellular cloud patterns, cloud layers and tropical disturbances, lines of cumulus clouds over the ocean, and thunderstorm areas. The crew used bungee exercisers, experiment M-3, more than had been planned, but White later said that his desire to do strenuous work dwindled during the flight, although, as McDivitt suggested, this might have been caused by lack of sleep. Both astronauts agreed that a systematic exercise program would be needed for long-duration missions. Sensors attached to pilots' bodies in the in-flight phonocardiogram experiment, M-4, gathered data on heart rates, especially during liftoff, EVA, and re-entry. As might be expected, their heartbeats were essentially normal, except during these periods. The bone demineralization experiment, M-6, did show a greater mass loss in the small finger and heel than had been experienced by earthbound bed-rested patients. One engineering experiment, electrostatic charge, MSC-1, gave higher readings than expected. Investigation later determined that thruster and water boiler operations produced some moisture, resulting in a higher electrical charge, which dissipated very quickly. 
Concerns that docking in space might generate a harmful jolt were then laid to rest. The proton-electron spectrometer and triaxis magnetometer radiation experiments provided useful data about Earth's radiation environment and the magnitude and direction of local geomagnetic fields. Photographing the red-blue Earth limb was the final experiment, and it was designed to help train Apollo astronauts in making navigational fixes. Now back to the flight. On the second day in orbit, Gemini 4 obtained the new U.S. flight duration record. Here's the clip. On the second day, as Gemini 4 came within range of Hawaii, it set a new American space record. Everyone was pretty casual. Also, would like to congratulate the new American space flight record. As the flight progressed on orbit 48 after 75 hours of flight, a problem arose. During a pass over the continental U.S., the flight computer was updated. McDivitt was told to switch off the computer. He flipped the switch, but the computer did not turn off. On the ground at Mission Control, efforts to solve the problem began immediately. For the next few orbits, the crew received instructions for trying different switch positions. After all the switching, the computer finally quit entirely and could not be turned back on. Now the astronauts would have to resort to a rolling mercury-type re-entry rather than the lifting bank angle the computer was supposed to help them achieve. Here's a clip of the computer problem. Decision made to use a rolling Mercury style re entry. We resume our flight coverage at orbit 60. The 60th revolution, the fourth day, and the computer out, but no problem. The flight surgeons made their final check. Both men were busy stowing equipment. Now television and radio were back again. A nation paused on a Monday morning, waiting to fly in with the crew of Gemini 4. On orbit 62, it was time to begin re entry. At 97 hours 28 minutes, the astronauts fired their maneuvering thrusters in the proper retro attitude for 2 minutes 41 seconds. Afterwards, they jettisoned the equipment adapter. Then they heard four bangs of the retro rockets. As White watched the brown, dusty Texas planes pass in review, he released the retro adapter. Here's the clip. Give him an 8-minute mark to uh, retro fire. Gemini 4 would fly the same type of re-entry as Gemini 2, an earlier unmanned flight. You're doing great. How about you? Gemini 4, Houston, top top.
At 120 kilometers, McDivitt started the rolling reentry. As the spacecraft rotated, the astronauts saw the adapter section trailing behind them turn into an orange mushroom as it burned. Without the computer, McDivitt and White suspected they would land short of the planned Atlantic landing point. The spacecraft was getting some lift, but they were sure it would not be enough. Now they could feel the increasing G's. White noticed no dimming of vision and no shortness of breath. The astronauts started talking and watched the instruments and enjoyed the scenery. Now I have something special, a recording of the astronauts speaking to each other on the capsule recorder during the re-entry blackout period. Communications with the ground break off, but the onboard tape recorder is running. We listen to two men returning to Earth after four days in space. Look at us, we're making it on fire too. Yeah, we're making a putting iron ionization layer out. They're not reading the same part now, probably. There goes Florida. Or is that Florida? I believe this. See that your side? Yeah. They're red hot. Yeah. Get back in our land. We ain't gonna do much about it from here, huh? At 27,000 meters, McDivitt slowed the roll rate and stopped it completely at 12,000 meters. Shortly after, he deployed the drogue chute. When it deployed, the spacecraft gyrated instead of stabilizing. At 3,200 meters, the main parachute deployed and unfurled with a comforting shock. And then the astronauts braced themselves for the 1,500 meter two-point suspension mark. When the spacecraft assumed its new position, the crew lurched forward, then backward, but neither knocked their helmets against anything. The splashdown occurred at T plus 97 hours, 56 minutes, and 12 seconds. The splashdown was rough, slamming the capsule against the water, but White and McDivitt were back on Earth and safe. Here's the clip. During re-entry, the USS Wasp launched 13 search and recovery aircraft. 24 splashed down at 12.13 Eastern Standard Time, June 7, 1965. It was sighted by a search aircraft seven minutes later. Navy frogmen swiftly attached the flotation collar. And at 12.39, Command Pilot McDivitt opened the hatch. Both men took a deep gulp of fresh air. Four days in space had ended. Jiminy 4 had missed its target by 80 kilometers, but several of the recovery ships had begun moving toward its landing site, and one helicopter crew was able to watch the spacecraft descend to the ocean. Within a few moments, swimmers jumped into the water and attached a flotation collar. Then the pilots were hoisted into the helicopter. During the helicopter ride, an MSC physician reported that the crew seemed to be in good shape. Nevertheless, 
everyone wondered about their physical condition after being weightless for so long. Fifty-seven minutes after touchdown, the crew stepped onto a red carpet on the deck of the aircraft carrier Wasp to be greeted by the ship's crew. Skeptics had predicted that the astronauts would suffer horrendous physical side effects during a long-duration flight and that the recovery crews would find either dead bodies or unconscious astronauts hovering on the brink of death once they opened the hatches. However, the recovery helicopter pilots saw a totally different sight. He said, quote, They were like a couple of kids playing on the beach, splashing in the salt water. End quote. Ed White was doing some kind of exercise that resembled deep knee bends. Both astronauts appeared to be in fine shape, aside from a slight case of seasickness on Ed's part and being in desperate need of a shower and shave. Ed White commented on their distinctive aroma. Quote, I thought we smelled fine. It was all those people on the carrier that smelled strange. End quote. On board the Wasp, Ed stated, quote, I felt so good I didn't know whether to hop, skip, jump, or walk on my hands. End quote. In fact, on the day after landing, on his way to the ship's medical ward, White noticed some marines and midshipmen having a tug of war. He joined the midshipmen for 15 minutes. Although his team lost, White certainly appeared strong and healthy. Immediately after the crew landed on the aircraft carrier, it was time for more medical examinations. A NASA information specialist who had seen Gordon Cooper stagger after his Mercury flight was surprised to see White do a little dance step, which immediately dissipated the tension in the air. Dr. Barry and his medical team examined the jovial astronauts over the next 66 hours and discovered no major problems relating to their long-duration spaceflight. But, in spite of their good moods, the astronauts had experienced some practical concerns during their flight. They found the work-rest cycle to be inadequate. Thoughts about running out of water had caused the crew to be overly conservative in their water intake, putting them at risk for dehydration. In addition, White noted that about four or five hours after eating, he began to feel as if his energy level was going downhill in a more pronounced manner than it did on Earth. Each time he ate, he noted a definite energy level increase. Those who knew Ed were not at all surprised to learn that hunger pangs were his biggest discomfort from the flight. He was known to have the most voracious appetite in the entire astronaut corps. Although, space doctors failed to find an ounce of fat on his 170-pound frame, White could put away two full-course dinners at one sitting and ask for dessert with a straight face. Dr. Barry had to agree as he found his patients fatigued but showing no sign of faintness. Although the loss of bone mass in the heel and little finger was not surprising, physicians were startled to find a loss in the volume of plasma circulating in the blood. Both McDivitt and White lost weight in space, as have all astronauts. McDivitt, 2 kilograms, 
which is four and a half pounds, and white lost four kilograms, which is eight and a half pounds. But they paved the way for even longer missions. And with White's voracious appetite, it did not take long for him to gain back the eight pounds he had lost during his flight. Here's a clip. They were flown to the deck of the Wasp. Admiral William McCormick, commander of the Western Atlantic Recovery Forces and his staff, offered the first formal congratulations on the flight. The crew then walked to the carrier elevator, bound for their physical examination. A long series of physical examinations would follow in the days ahead. The condition of both astronauts was excellent. While the doctors were examining the crew, another group of men were scrutinizing other data just as closely. The engineers who designed the spacecraft and solved the problems took a hard look at what happened. They analyzed miles of coded tape which spell out each detail of the mission. The results were more than a demonstration of man's ability to go into space and return. Gemini 4 was a major advance in manned spaceflight operations, the first time two men had spent four days in space. The crew, eating, working, sleeping in space, demonstrated that man can perform a number of functions in the exploration of space in a properly controlled environment and suffer no significant ill effect from extended spaceflight. Colonel White demonstrated that an extravehicular astronaut could travel in a precise manner from point to point. For the first time during an extravehicular activity, the spacecraft was flown with steady control by its command pilot. Colonel McDivitt also performed re-entry under manual control, further evidence that man can circumvent problems which arise by carrying out a primary operation in a straightforward manner. Gemini 4 was an encouraging landmark in relation to the future objectives of both the Gemini and Apollo programs. All told, Gemini 4 made 62 orbits around the Earth, flying a grand total of 1,609,700 miles before splashing down in the Atlantic. Upon returning to Houston, White and McDivitt received a grand welcome home. President Lyndon Johnson took the opportunity to promote both men to the rank of lieutenant colonel and present each of them with a NASA Exceptional Service Medal. The city of Chicago threw McDivitt and White an enormous ticker tape parade, and the University of Michigan awarded the newly created Honorary Doctorate Degree of Astronautical Science to both of their alumni. After receiving the degree, White, who still was trying to adjust to his new military title, joked, Quote, I can hardly get used to people calling me colonel. I know in a million years I'll never get used to people calling me doctor. End quote. Finally, White and McDivitt, along with their families, were asked to represent the United States at the upcoming Paris Air Show, which they did. In spite of the presence of Russia's pride and joy, Yuri Gagarin, the U.S. Gemini Space Twins captured a great deal of media attention and promoted the U.S. manned space program internationally. The Gemini 4 capsule is now located at its final resting place, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. 
If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.